from ARUP Laboratories on the campus of the University of Utah. Welcome to the LabMind Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Jackson. Today is Tuesday, the 12th of September, 2023. We have a return guest on LabMind today, Dr. Ela Singh, coming to us from Texas Children's Hospital and the Baylor College of Medicine. Now, our last LabMind conversation was in July of 2019. It's still on the arep.utah.edu site to listen to if you haven't already. There's also a recorded presentation of Dr. Singh's Grand Rounds episode from that same year, which is one of our most downloaded educational presentations that we have on the arep.utah.edu website. So I wanted to plug that. And today's episode will be a follow-up on the same theme, namely laboratory test naming and the True Lab project that Dr. Singh founded and has led these last few years. Ela Singh received her medical degree at the University of Bombay, followed by a PhD at Yale, clinical pathology residency at New York Presbyterian, a postdoc at Stanford. Then she became faculty here at the University of Utah for a time before going on to be laboratory director and chief of clinical pathology at Mount Sinai in New York City. And she is currently chief of laboratory medicine at Texas Children's Hospital and tenured professor of pathology and immunology at the Baylor College of Medicine. Ela Singh, welcome to LabMind. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a little bit of background. What is TrueLab and what was the motivation behind it? Yeah, so lab names are not standardized. One lab test can have multiple names in different laboratories, different hospitals, and this can lead to confusion around ordering tests and medical errors. TrueLab is an initiative to standardize laboratory test names and to prevent confusion. Do you see laboratory test names as being different than, let's say, drug names or imaging test names or disease names? You're absolutely right, Brian. They're very different. Let's just take drug names, for example. Drug names and both brand and generic, there's a lot of research that goes into them before they choose a drug name so they make sure that drug does not get confused with another drug that may be used for something completely different. The FDA gets into looking at all of that data and approving the names. And you don't have one drug with more than one name. You can't buy the same thing under 10 different names, which is very different from the laboratory world where every laboratory chooses their own name for that test. And often that name is chosen by one person. There's not a committee. Clinicians are rarely ever involved, and they're the people using the test who should be involved, but they're not involved in creating the name. So the result is that even one single healthcare system, like the VA system in the United States, has 67 different names for albumin. That's crazy. I'll just let that sink in for a second. Albumin is a serum protein. It does not have a common name and a scientific name. It's one word. If you try to think about 67 different names for it, you're right. It's crazy. So tell us about the TrueLab initiative. Who's involved in it and what the activities have been? TrueLab has many, many members. 
There are members from professional societies, especially most of the pathology professional societies. We also have reference labs, instrumentation vendors, federal liaisons, the CDC, CMS, FDA, including a lot of individual clinical pathologists and laboratorians. With research projects, the more people involved, the more complicated it gets. So why shoot for such a broad representation in an organization like this? It was really important to have this broad representation because I wanted to get different ideas. We have gotten such diverse ideas of how these names should be created, how they would be better understood. We couldn't have done this by ourselves. Having all these other people, they brought resources as well. ARUP, for example, shared their style guide, guidelines of how to create laboratory test names. This was not an easy resource to come by. We asked a lot of people, and they either didn't have a style guide, which is the other shocking thing that people make names without any rules to them, or if they had them, they were unwilling to share. Having this broad collective of people gave us access to different ideas, different resources. It taught us about different cultures. We spoke with pathologists in the UK and different parts of Europe, Australia, and we found that the culture around laboratory test ordering was different from the United States. The United States, we call a lab test an order. We in pathology obey that order without question. Whereas in the UK, it is called a test request. And if a pathologist notices that something is obviously wrong, they just go and change it to the right test. So if you notice that there was a wellness visit and there was the wrong vitamin D, they would just go and swap it out. Whereas if I saw a wrong test like that, I would have to pick up the phone, connect with the clinician, and then ask the clinician to go into the chart to go and correct that. That's a 10-minute conversation at the fastest, and I can't do that with every wrong order that I see. It's interesting to contrast that with pharmacy. In the U.S., the role of the pharmacist in a hospital is absolutely to double-check and make sure that the drug order looks correct. Correct. And a lot of people have in their clinical rules that a pharmacist can swap a generic for a brand without even consulting with the clinician. Laboratory directors do not have those authorities. So tell us a little bit about the structure of this research program, the funding that you received, and the way that the TrueLab research has unfolded. So I thought from the very beginning that it would be really important to get the opinion of clinicians in making test names. And one way to do that would be to survey clinicians who use tests. And the CDC funding was very useful and instrumental in making these surveys happen because we pay the survey takers a small amount to take the surveys. In fact, all of the true lab people who were making the surveys and analyzing them are working gratis. It's a patron project for all of us, but the grant is very useful to defray the survey costs. Very early on in the process, 
we surveyed pathologists, a few hundred of them, to tell us about test names that were problematic. Again, we got a few hundred responses, and then we categorized them into 10 different categories of why there are errors. And then we started making questions to ask in a survey. A small group, maybe three, four people, pathologists, people from family medicine, the group takes on a question. There's always somebody for whom this is a subject matter expert domain. If not, then we ask somebody outside. For example, there were some things on mass casualty testing, but we didn't have anybody in our group. So we reached out to emergency medicine physicians to help make that question. So we always get in some subject matter experts into the question making. And then the way it works is that the survey is usually a three-part. First, we ask the question where we pose a clinical scenario and give some options of tests and ask them to choose those tests that they consider would be right for that situation. That's our unaided survey that helps us assess the baseline knowledge in these survey takers. Then we give them background information about the test itself. And usually there's a nice graphic that we draw and we explain what is special about this test and how it works, when it is to be used, et cetera. And then we ask a series of questions, knowing what they know about the background. How would they name this test so that they could find it and distinguish it from the other tests that may sound or look alike? So now we are asking for their opinion in crafting a name. And we try to do it with as little bias as possible. In the questions, we want them to come to a decision with as little preconceived notion as possible. Crafting surveys is a lot harder than people realize before they've actually done it. Can you comment on that a little bit? It is really hard. And we do not learn how to do that in our normal medical education. It has been very helpful for us to have the Brand Institute as partners in this. So the Brand Institute is an organization that has helped name more than 75% of drugs that are used all over the world. I had approached them even before the CDC funding came through to ask them if they would help us because they were so good at creating pharmaceutical names. By now, we have done a total of seven rounds of surveys. Each round has anywhere from four to seven modules. And by modules, I mean one test. Another module may be slightly differently structured where we are looking at, say, abbreviations. Do people want to see a test as CBC or complete blood count or C-reactive protein versus CRP? So that module, we may be interrogating about 20 different abbreviations. Each of these surveys is presented to 200 survey takers at any given time. And 20% of them are emergency room physicians, 20% pediatricians, 20% family practice, general practice, 20% OB-GYNs, and 10% nurse practitioners and 10% 
physician assistants. So that's the makeup of all of the surveys. A median would be in the 10 to 20 years of clinical practice. Those are pretty good numbers. It's not easy to get that many physicians to participate in a project like this. What for you have been the most interesting findings so far? What really jumped out at you or concerned you or caught your attention? What concerned me the most is the findings from the unaided survey, the part where we present a clinical scenario and without giving them much information about the test, we ask them to choose a test. We find that for most tests, the rate of choosing the right test was not much better than chance alone. Overall, I think the rate of right responses was about 56-57%. And for many tests, it was right around 49-50%. That worries me, Brian, that makes me want to do this as fast as possible because we know that those same errors that are being made in our surveys are being made all over the country in different doctor's offices. Yeah, I think we believe this intuitively. And I think all of us in the lab space have seen examples of this, but seeing this confirmed in a controlled setting is definitely concerning. Yeah. The extent of it is not what I expected. What are some of the themes about what makes a good versus a not-so-good test name? If I had to generalize, people want to see the name of the target being tested, and they want to see the scientific name of the target. The next thing they want to see when they're trying to distinguish between that target and another closely related name is they want to see the indication for use. They do not want to see a contraindication. So they do not want to see not for X. They want to see for. So maybe something like HCG for pregnancy screening. Exactly. Yes. HCG for pregnancy screening versus HCG for tumor marker. As opposed to saying pregnancy test where you're leaving it ambiguous as to what the target is. Yeah. The other thing is that they really want to see a lot of information in the test name. To give you an example, Ebola testing, where the specimen has to be collected under very special precautions. It needs to be transported with Department of Transportation rules. You have paper forms to be filled usually, and all of this needs to be done with a lot of people involved. So we wanted to ask them, where would you like to see this information? Would you like to see this somewhere in the test catalog, in the laboratory? Would you like infection control or the laboratory to take care of it? And surprisingly, they wanted all of that information in the test name. So I think we ended up with a test name like viral hemorrhagic fever, comma, needs approval, comma, forms, comma, special transport. And people chose that name over something more abbreviated. Interesting. You can understand where the information is coming from here, because Ebola is clearly not something that you're going to be testing for on a routine basis. I think a lot of this comes from electronic medical records not having a way to show this information easily somewhere else. You can't hover over the name 
So then the name explodes into, say, components of a panel. So similarly for a respiratory virus panel, people wanted to see the names of all of the viruses in that panel. Because there are many respiratory virus panels, we don't know which one this particular test is for, they wanted to see all of that in the test name. But a clever EMR, and we don't have those yet, would allow you to just hover over the name and show you all of the 15 virus names on there. So that was another thing we learned is that people really want to see a lot in the name. And some of this is to just make up for what the electronic medical record cannot do. The other thing we found is that some of the things that we consider in the laboratory as standard, say, nucleic acid amplification test or NAAT, no one wanted to see that. They would rather see PCR or PCR or equivalent, which is what NAAT is. Interesting, because that term's been around for quite some time. It feels a little discouraging that the clinical world isn't used to it by now. They're not. And in general, people do not like to see abbreviations. Unless that abbreviation has made it into the vernacular, like PCR. Or HIV. Everyone knows what HIV is. Exactly. They do not want to see human immunodeficiency viruses. But almost everything else, they want to see the full form. So up to this point, we've been talking about communicating to medical professionals. What about patients? Yeah, I think patients should be a very important part of when we make lab names because they should be seeing their lab test records. I can't quote specifically, but I think I've seen research that not only do a large portion of patients regularly review their laboratory results, but laboratory results appear to be one of the most downloaded or viewed portions of medical records by patients. That's absolutely correct. So the name of the lab test when it appears in that report is important. Let's say that a person is taking a prescribed painkiller. The doctor wants to know if they're taking it and they order the most commonly named test for such purposes. It's called the drugs of abuse panel. Now, if you're taking this prescribed drug, you're being a good patient. And now you see this test name called drugs of abuse panel. You would be offended. I would. And we need to think about are there better ways of naming such tests? And this is the most recent true lab survey that is out there. We are asking people if they would like to see this name from the patient perspective. Or would a name like controlled substances be better or toxicology screen? Anything that doesn't implicate that the patient is an abuser. But those names are not going to be well recognized by clinicians. So, you know, they may not find a test which is called toxicology screen if they're used to drugs of abuse. So we need to find out. And here's where the diversity of thought comes in. True Lab members also brought up that depending on what a test is named, it might be used differently. So if a test is called drugs of abuse, it might be used more frequently in a certain demographic. Whereas if a test is called controlled substances or toxicology screen, it might be used differently. And then we're asking people to think very differently about this test. Would this test be more useful if it is 
tailored more to the symptoms with which somebody comes in. For example, testing for intoxicated states or altered consciousness or testing by location in which it is used. So if you're interested in drugs of abuse in an obstetric setting, you may be only wanting to test for drugs that will affect the newborn. So you could just say testing for drugs in obstetrics or labor and delivery. So thinking about that whole test in a different way and asking people for their feedback is where we're going. I really like that last example because it shows how Even though we're framing this as a naming question, sometimes it really has broader implications about panel design and how we approach the diagnostic process at all. But names are a good place to start, I guess. They are. A lot of the thinking is that while we have these people taking the survey, let us find the best way to do it, not just tweaking the name itself, but thinking about it conceptually in a different way. So where are you hoping that all of this will lead to? If we are having this conversation five years from now, what are your hopes and dreams of how these findings will get implemented, how systems will be changed? So I really hope that we are able to come to a standardized set of laboratory test names, that when somebody is thinking about bringing on a test that is already established, they don't try to make up a name. There is a name that they can use. They don't wing it. They don't wing it, which is what is happening right now. And we won't have 67 names for albumin. I also hope that we can create some guidelines around names that when there are new tests, as there are bound to be, we have a format to use them. And we don't just go with whatever name the vendor made up. And I'm hoping that we can make a list and then the EMR companies, many of whom are members of TrueLab, will use them in a foundation build. If we had a set of standard names that when people were either upgrading their system or if they were moving to a new system, They had a list of standardized test names that have been carefully thought through, and that would make it easier for people to adopt new names if they came to them as part of a transition to a new system. So I'm hoping we can do that in the next few years. Like I like to say, in medicine, we're in the information business. We may think we're in the chemistry and biology business, but to a large extent, we're all in the information business. We are. And Brian, you've said this well before, that we can buy a $5 item from Amazon with a lot more information around that product than we can for a $5,000 laboratory test. Yeah. And a laboratory test with high stakes for that patient and getting the right therapy and everything else. Right. And what we often tend to not worry about is that these things cost something to the patient too. There is always a copay involved in these tests. And if you have been tested every year with the wrong vitamin D and you've been paying for that, you should be angry. And vitamin D is not a very expensive test, but there are others that are far more expensive. All right. Well, Ela Singh, thank you so much for being on LabMind today. And let's hope that this initiative continues to change the system. Well, thank you very much for having me, Brian. And thank you for being such a key part of TrueLab as well. 
LabMind is sponsored by ARUP Laboratories, a not-for-profit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology. Our producer is Cherie Peterson, with audio engineering by Matteo Del Monte. You can also find other LabMind episodes at arup.utah.edu, along with an extensive video lecture library, providing free CME and CE credits for medical and laboratory professionals. You can also subscribe to LabMind on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast app. If you do access LabMind through an app, I would encourage you to leave a rating and a review in order to help others find the podcast.